everyone. Welcome back to the Mike Rosart Show. Just uh, was having a little afternoon siesta, and then I realized uh, it's almost the Wise Wall Show. And so I pulled out my phone. Here we are. It is the Mike Rosart Show live every Wednesday, 7 p.m., without delay, whether I am up to the task or not. Today, I feel like I'm a little tired, so I get my energy levels up and Let's get it going. But uh, today we're gonna do an open Q&A on anything money-related, anything um, financial independence-related, anything real estate-related you wanna bring it into, bring it in. Um, so what are some early retirement money secrets, I suppose you could, you could call them? And it was really, I was just gonna do a, a title of like discussing how to manage your money better, but I thought, geez, there's like the Dave Ramsey camp of folks who, you know, like they, they don't believe in debt, right? And debt can be good. So I, I didn't want to just use, you know, basic money. I wanted to use early retirement. I think that's a big piece. If you have early retirement money secrets, there's more to that. There's, there's a level of, I guess, frugalness meets, you know, risk meets return that, that you don't get in the, you know, more basic financial independence advice. So I kind of wanted to title it a little something different. Hey, Coolio Breeze, good to see you on. Oak Ridge Source says, hey, hey, how you doing? Yeah, as you guys jump on, just feel free to ask any questions you'd like. Uh, hey, bro, got you on in sunny Melbourne, aka Face Mask City. Interesting. Beautiful to hear that it's sunny. We, we've actually got, uh, it was a good day today. There's lots of sun. If you're following my Instagram, I had a great walk at the scenic park with my daughter. Went for a bike ride and a walk. But uh, now it's kind of a bit overcast, so I think we might get some rain here in London, Ontario. Good to see you. Glad to hear that you're you're watching. Bruno says, "Hey Mike, do you even know if you're getting too levered in real estate, or how do you know? What are some real life examples of investors getting into financial trouble?" Good question, Bruno. I think when it comes to leverage, the thing to be careful of when it comes to taking on too much debt is when the debt isn't self-serviced by the asset. So, for instance, you go buy a single-family house in Vancouver that has a 5,000 a month burn rate with mortgage and everything else. So you've levered up and you're renting it for $3,000 a month. Very common in Toronto, very common in Vancouver, and you're taking a one or $2,000 loss or maybe at best case scenario breaking even. And a lot of these investors are levering up in these major cities, buying properties that are single family that don't cash flow. And so that's bad debt. And you might see the headlines of like landlord goes under you know, with too much debt. And it's not that they had too much debt, it's that they were buying the wrong assets. Um, so if you're buying the right assets, it doesn't matter. But where there's a problem is where you make the wrong decision. And this can happen even on a 1% rule property. You buy a property and you don't manage it properly. You put bad managers in place, or you manage it yourself, tenants stop paying. Now you're in a position where if you don't have the liquidity to cover even a few months of mortgage payments, you're gonna be in a situation where you're underwater really quick. And that's why the general easy advice to say, hey, stay away from debt. But debt isn't bad, it's just that like most people don't know how to wield the weapon. And so it's like saying, it's like saying knives are bad because I cut myself with a knife, therefore all knives are bad, stay away from knives. It's like, no, you could use a knife to cut vegetables, you could use a knife for great things and to accomplish more. It's a lot easier to dice up vegetables with a knife than with your you know bare hands or a fork, right? So to say like no debt is bad, um, yeah, I think that's the wrong advice. I think the right advice is, if you're using the weapon correctly, debt is a, a great weapon in your arsenal. You should be 
you should be leveraging that as a real estate investor. Honestly, as an early retiree, you should be embracing debt, especially debt that's at two or 3% interest rate. Right now we're seeing in Canada, the lowest interest rates in history. Um, we're seeing five-year fixed mortgages on ratespy.com. I get nothing to plug them. I don't know why they don't sponsor me. They should. If anyone you know, reaches out to them, they should say, hey, Mike Rosar plugs you guys all the time on Instagram and YouTube. But they're better than Ratehub, in my opinion. And uh, for a number of reasons, they're more transparent. They, I like their site better. They, uh, they post better rates. They don't post just the paid rates. So brokers who don't pay get posted on there. But uh, people are seeing... You know, 1.89 five-year fixed, 1.99 five-year fixed with 20% down. The high ratio um, insured mortgages, we're seeing 1.49, 1.59% interest. That is cheap debt tied to real estate that if you buy the right type of real estate, which is cash flowing real estate, that's great. If you also go into debt to buy businesses that have strong cash flow, that's good too. One rule of thumb, I think, or something to mention is when you're taking on leverage, you know, a rule of thumb is when I'm looking at a business, for instance, and saying, hey, is it over levered, right? That's one thing is liquidity. So liquidity or like the, in accounting, look at things like the acid test or things like, you know, how much cash do they have to cover debt obligations? And so one thing I like to do is have unsecured lines of credits that are untapped, that are available, that I can use at any time, plus cash. But I like the unsecured lines of credits because they're there if you need them. It's not you tying up your own cash in the case that you need liquidity, but it is liquidity. It's, it's cash. If you need it, it's there. You're liquid. Um, so if you had a, say, a $50,000 unsecured line of credit, most people who make $50,000 a year can go and apply for one at like Scotiabank, Bank of Nova Scotia. It's great. I like them. Uh, but also TD, Bank of Montreal, RBC, CIBC, all the credit unions. You can go anywhere and get a line of credit for twenty dollars to $50,000 if you have a job. Um, and you could probably do it at multiple different banks and get those unsecured lines of credits. They're fantastic. If you have a decent credit score, go out and get one because they're fantastic to have, not to use. Like I almost never draw it down. It's just there, you know, in that worst case scenario that imagine tenants didn't pay rent, your, your one or two month rent emergency fund is gone and a few things pop up with the properties and you've got all these debt obligations and just imagine a worst case scenario where they're, you know, you're not getting any rents from any of your tenants. That's a situation where you'd be over levered and if you didn't have liquidity, you'd go down. Now, the reason why leverage is so great is I've said a thousand times in this channel, if you have a 3% appreciation on your property and you're 20% down, five to one levered with an 80% loan to value mortgage, your 3% appreciation is 15% return, right? If it's a 10% appreciation, it's a 50% return on your down payment. Same is true for cash flow. If you're getting a 20% you know, return on your down, on your um, return on asset, let's say, it's really high actually. Probably in London, you'd get like, 10%. So you're getting 10% return on asset, you lever up with 20% down, you're getting a 40% return on your down payment just from rental income because you use leverage. Now, if you own that property in cash with no debt, you'd be getting a 10% return. That's not very attractive compared to a 40% return, right? So it's all about comparing, contrasting, um, you know, looking at and saying, hey, does this make sense? Is this something that, you know, when you're running the numbers, is this something that's going to put me in a position where I'm further ahead? Or is this going to be taking on risk that isn't managed? <laughs> Pouring your cheese grater. All right, that's cool. Um, yeah, just ask, you know, before you come in the unit and you're good to go. Um, <laughs> Brenton's one of the newest mentees. Welcome to the house. How do you know if you're getting too levered in real estate? We answered that question. Next one. Hey, Brandon. Uh, Parappa says, hey, Mike, any tips on negotiating a job offer to get a higher salary? 
Well, the one thing that I've always found as both a, when I used to be an employee and when I used to also hire people when we had our, our construction and property management business was that the more in demand a person was, the more I wanted to pay for them. And that sounds weird, but like a good example would be if you were, you know, if you had a job offer, you could say, hey, I have another job offer, or just go and get another job offer and basically use that job offer to get a better offer on the original offer. So go apply at five places and get a better offer. Even at a place you don't wanna work, take that offer and shop at someone else. It's the same when you're applying for mortgages. Take a mortgage rate, shop it somewhere else, another lender will beat it. Um, get a contractor quote, take that contractor quote, bring it to another contractor, the contractor will beat it. Very common, a little bit more work, but it works very well um, in the employment space as well. If you're working on a job right now, you've not been getting, hey, we got a super chat. Robin Dales, thank you for the super chat. I appreciate that. Uh, it means a lot. I don't always get super chats. So it's like, you know, once a month we get a super chat. Gotta be thankful when I get them. So thank you so much for supporting the channel. And uh, more than anything else, sending me a super chat means that you appreciate my time and my content. And so it's better than a, than a clap on stage. I, as a musician or a performer or someone who's you know giving away content for either entertainment or education purposes, it's the greatest thank you that you can give me. So I appreciate that a lot. If you asked a question, your question gets priority and I don't see it here. So I'll keep an eye out for it if one pops up from you. But back to where I was saying, uh, you know, how do you get the best job offer or the highest salary, I guess, in your job is to make yourself seem like you're extremely valuable. And I helped a friend do this actually. When we used to work in the corporate world, I helped a friend go through five stages of interview process and we got them a great job. They brought that job offer to their boss who passed them up for a promotion and a raise and instantly got five to 10,000 bump on their, I think it was 10,000 on their salary and got promoted. So what will end up happening is when you, you'll get passed up on a promotion until you have another job offer in hand, you bring it back to your boss, they'll keep you. Same thing happened to me when I had contractors working for me. I had one who was poached and I had to up their salary 20% to keep them. Now the gamble with this is if you're actually not a good employee or you're not that great and you go and pull that card and you say, hey, I got an offer somewhere else, and they say, okay, go. Um, so that's the risk, but if you are actually a high performer and you are valued at your work, push the envelope and just see, right? So that's always something to think about at the end of the day. If you're trying to increase your salary, play that game because almost always the employer's job is to get as much as they can out of the employee for as little cost as they possibly can. So they will pay you the least they think they can pay you to get the money out of you. Wow, another super chat. 10 bucks, thank you, Watts. Much appreciated, Watts, I appreciate that. Um, the exact same sentiment echoed. Oh, I see one here from Watts. Hi, Mike, how do you get the banks to qualify the money you make through private lending when applying for more mortgages? Watts, um, a lot of banks don't wanna use the income from private lending. The way I'd probably go about structuring that would be open a corp that does private lending and ideally you structure it as like consulting fees. So put a percentage of your earnings as like, maybe you do a site visit on every property you lend on, you go to the property and you do your own appraisal and you do your own whatever before you assess that, put a deal fee together, a one to 2% uh, fee up front. A lot of lenders do this, very common. Now your corp has income, you're now a consultant corp, right? And you do make interest income as well, but now pay yourself a salary. And after, I guess if it's fully your own corp and you're in control of the corp, you need two years of income in that corp. And then all of that income would be eligible for, uh, I guess they would use it to qualify for any mortgages. So that's the way you, you turn your passive income into an active source is do it in a corp and you 
basically either dividend yourself out for two years consistently or pay yourself a salary for two years consistently. It shouldn't make a huge difference. Um, most banks will look at the corp and look at the dividends you're paying out. Um, dividends are a more preferred way to earn the income from the corp from a tax perspective. So you'd probably want to dividend out. But yeah, you could set up a private lending corp where you lent your money into the corp, the corp then lent it out, uh, and you basically try to make lending fees and appraisal fees and, and plus interest in that corp and then pay it back out to yourself. With a million bucks in, in private lending in one of those corps, you could easily get yourself a six-figure salary um, using one of these corps, and then you'd have the ability to qualify for mortgages. So then you could lever up even further and increase your overall net income, which is the goal, right? Net of all cost of debt, you wanna have positive cash flow that increases your net worth, or else what's the point of doing it? I mean, I guess appreciation, buying real estate for appreciation could be a reason to do it. But in my books, that's not enough. That isn't, doesn't give me enough hunger to wanna to go out and acquire properties just for the sake of appreciation. There's gotta be a little bit of sweetener every month as well. But great question. Thank you Watts for the super chat, it means a lot. And if you uh, pop up another question, I'll try to give you priority tonight. Because if you super chat, you get priority in the comments. That's just, that's just the way it is. Thanks Watts. Okay, so next question here, I'll scroll back up, find my place and keep going down the list of the muggle questions, the non-super chatting muggles. That's a reference to a Harry Potter where, meaning you don't have any magical qualities like a wizard would, you're just human. Um, <laughs> no offense, seriously, appreciate everyone who's watching right now. So the next question on the list was, uh, the reason I ask is because everything I hear or read is about how real estate is, I think you want to say good. My own experience so far has been amazing. Um, cash flow, great tenants, cheap interest rates, great tax returns, tons of growth, Something feels too good to be true. Bruno, great question and great points. You'll notice a couple of streams ago, I was sort of harping on how management can destroy cash flow, like bad property management, either done by yourself and most often done by a property manager. Um, it's possible you could shit the bed on your own property, but it's less likely. It's more likely that someone who doesn't have an equity stake in your property, who doesn't actually care whether or not you know, it's a pest control spray because they don't pay for it or whether there's a repair on the property because they don't pay for it. A manager who has no vested interest in the cash flow on a monthly basis or the equity on sale would, in theory, do a terrible job because they're not incentivized properly to manage the property effectively. So that's a big risk. When we talk about all the great things of real estate, let's talk about some of the negative things. I like that, Bruno. That's, that's some sobering reality because I've talked to a lot of investors who have made a lot of money in real estate. And because London, Ontario and Canada in general and probably North America from what I've seen in general has appreciated so significantly over the last five years, no matter how bad any of these stories I'm gonna tell you are, most of these investors still made money and it's not their fault. As in like, they made money but they shouldn't have. It was the market that did well and they did well because of the market and they were levered in the market and that's why it went well. But if the market had gone down over the last five years, you'd hear more of these horror stories um, come to light because people wouldn't have made money on sale or refinance but examples of where it goes bad. I've seen people buy properties with bad tenants in them and go a year trying to evict them and collect no rent for a full year. They buy a property, tenants like, ah, oh, screw this landlord, I'm gonna milk the system, it'll be a year before he can evict me and they'll just milk you for a year of rent. That's an example of what happens when you're banking on $3,000 a month in rental income to cover your expenses. Well now 12 months goes by, you get the tenant out, tenants trashed your house, there's $20,000 in repair costs you didn't expect, there goes on your maintenance budget, and you just lost 3,000 times 12, $36,000 in rent. So you just took a loss of $56,000 on your rental property you just bought. It's happened to me. Even some of the best guys who are good at navigating, and I'm not saying I'm the best, but good at navigating through the tenant waters and giving cash for keys to tenants. By the way, I strongly recommend finding a resolution with a tenant 
early on. If you could imagine in that scenario I just gave you guys, if you could bribe your tenant for $5,000 to leave the unit in good condition, even $10,000 to leave the unit in good condition right now, that's a hell of a lot better than them staying for a year and you having to fight with them and eventually evict them and have $20,000 in damages. It sounds crazy. Some landlords out of principle will never pay a tenant to leave, but I've actually paid tenants to leave my units in good condition. It makes sense to incentivize a tenant and say, hey, here's $1,000 to leave you know, in two weeks and you'd be done or $10,000 or whatever it costs to get rid of the tenant. In a lot of cases, the tenant has nowhere to go. They can't afford to leave. If you pay them, they can afford to find a new place. And so you may lose three, four months fighting with them for them to leave without you incentivizing them. And that three, four months in rent is actually more expensive than just paying them to leave. It can be cheaper to give them five or $10,000 to leave. So that's a really big, I guess, warning sign for those investing in real estate. That's something to look out for. It happens more than you think, especially in Ontario where landlords don't have a lot of rights. Thankfully, we have uh, what, Bill 184 coming out and that's gonna give landlords, um, it gives tenants more power, but it gives landlords more power. It gives only good tenants more power. The bad tenants lose a lot of the leverage they have. For instance, you used to have to go through an eviction, there's be a payment plan, you have to go back to the tribunal when they didn't make their payment plan. Now, they don't make their payment plan that was agreed to at the tribunal, you can evict them right away. So that's gonna sh cut down the time it takes to evict a tenant who's delinquent, who's purposely not paying rent and trying to scan the system, they're gonna be gone quick. That's gonna save the good tenants a lot of money because landlords can keep the rents lower. We don't have to jack the rents up to cover the cost of all the delinquent bad tenants, right? That are destroying the units that aren't paying their rent. You know, those types of tenants make it bad and there's not very many of them, one or two, but they make it bad for the eight out of 10 that are good tenants. Uh, and by the way, like a lot of tenants are great. And what we think of when we think of, you know, a tenant is often like the average good tenant. But the problem is those bad stories stay in our mind. Like that, those 10 tenants I've had that have destroyed my property who haven't paid rent, they stay fresh in my mind compared to the hundreds that I've had over time who have made payments consistently, who I almost never hear from. They're not top of mind because they're great tenants. And it's unfortunate because we don't talk enough about how, there's how many great tenants there are and how you can find a lot of great tenants. Mostly because it's our job as a landlord to avoid the bad tenants. So we're thinking about what are the characteristics of a bad tenant? How do we avoid that in the future? Um, so it's business like any other. And that's the thing I think a lot of people miss is that real estate isn't just, you know, passive income. It's a business and businesses can be automated and can be outsourced and can be systematized to be semi-passive or mostly passive, but it's not. There's a layer of active management that has to be put into each and every property. And if you don't put that care or that time into your business, into your real estate business, it will suffer. That's just a fact. Um, so that's, a, I guess, another con. If you have no time, if you're busy traveling for work, you're a busy consultant traveling around the world, you buying 10 properties in London, Ontario isn't probably gonna go very well. Even though it looks good on paper and you get a lot of cash flow on paper, you'll have to put a manager in who probably doesn't care, who won't do as good of a job as you forecast in the numbers probably, and who might have a year of no rent collection. It might take them a year to get the tenant out and the tenant trashes the unit. That kind of stuff, it's hard to budget and plan for. That stuff happens. And that's where liquidity is so important. As a real estate investor, I keep one to 2% of the value of my property in liquid at all times. So you buy a $500,000 property in London, Ontario, that's almost an average detached house now in London, which is crazy. The market's been bumping and jumping since uh, COVID's kind of, we've moved into phase three here, and we're, you know, everything's opening up and there's still a ton of stimulus money and interest rates are the lowest they've ever been. Um, it makes a lot of, there's a lot of things going on that are conflicting that I don't want to get into right now, but I think that the market's a little overvalued, but it is what it is. Here in London, Ontario, 
Um, the average house, let's say $500,000. I keep five to $10,000 cash set aside in liquidity or an available line of credit for each property of that size. So a $500,000 property means you should have five to $10,000 liquid. If you have 10 of those properties in London, Ontario, you should have 50 to $100,000 liquid at any given time, minimum to run your business. The problem is landlords don't do that. They get, they invest everything they have or whatever, they spend it all and they have no excess liquidity. They have 10 properties and they got $10,000 in cash. Something goes wrong. You need a couple furnaces, a couple tenants don't pay and now you're underwater and you're over levered. So the, where leverage is scary is where you don't have liquidity and you don't have adequate cash flow. And ideally you have enough positive cash flow from your portfolio of rental properties that if one property doesn't cash flow, the other, you know, eight or nine will make up the difference for you so you can carry through. And that's the idea with a larger portfolio. Um, but sometimes things happen and five of your 10 properties might all at once be vacant and something, you know, they might all be being turned around and you might have to dump out a ton of cash. And real estate is a very cash intensive business more so than most other businesses out there. And I think a lot of the people on YouTube, a lot of people sharing content on real estate investing don't shine a light on how, um, I guess, how much cash it requires to invest in real estate. You need access to a lot of cash. Now that means you might need JV partners. You might need access to lines of credits. You might just have to have huge emergency funds or access to stocks you could quickly sell or home equity lines of credits or something, but you need access to cash. Ideally that cash isn't just sitting there doing nothing for you. That's just losing to inflation and being eaten away. That's not a good solution either. So it's finding somewhere in the middle, I think, um, you know, maybe you have a little bit of cash and in, in an investment account as well as, you know, access to these lines of credits. And I think I prefer personally lines of credits um, only because in home equity lines of credits and, and stuff like that, a lot of my Scotiabank mortgages on my rental properties, as I make every payment, opens up a company called a, uh, a step plan. And so as you make payments on your principal, you immediately have a line of credit available automatically. So all my properties after a year of owning them have these small little lines of credits on every property. And so that's a good piece of liquidity that I recommend. If you get the right mortgage product on your rental property, you'll have liquidity at all times. And so that's something that's great without a, without a pre-approval, without anything, you can walk to the bank and access that. Cause let's say you had a $200,000 mortgage at the end of year one of owning that rental property, you're probably down to like 190 something thousand on your amortization schedule left owing. So there's 8,000 in available room you've paid down in the last year on your mortgage payments. You can tap into if you need liquidity. That's cool, where if you have a mortgage product that can do that, that's great. Uh, I'm not a spokesperson from Scotiabank, but that's just, I'm sure other mortgage companies have similar products, but a lot of the mortgage products that I see brokers put people into don't have that flexibility, don't have a step program that allows you automatic pre-approval to access that cash back up to the original mortgage amount at any time you'd like. That's a cool product that would ensure that if you had the right, let's say you're over levered in a, in a worst case scenario, if you had access to a little bit on each property, you, could, you wouldn't be over levered. You'd have the liquidity to carry through till there's cash flow again, right? So it's one of those things where you will definitely get to a position of, you know, massive wealth, I think, honestly, if you can weather those times where real estate isn't positive cash flow. And it's where people get into these ruts where they, you know, properties require a lot of capital or some vacancy, a tenant gets kicked out. It happens at a few properties all at once where they go under because they just don't have enough cash and their property is stuck, half renovated. And I, I used to buy properties off people who were landlords who got into this issue. And, and my job is to come in and bail them out. They're like, hey, you have no access to capital. I'll take your property off you for 80 cents on the dollar. And they're like, thank you. The banker is going to take it for 60 cents on the dollar or whatever, right? So it's coming in and solving their problem for them. And uh, that's one of the other things I guess is time. It takes a lot of time to invest in real estate. So that's another piece, I guess, on the negative side 
for real estate is there's a lot of time investment. And if your time is valuable, it's probably better you invest that time in your business or whatever else you're doing because you'll make more than investing that time in real estate. I have people reach out to me who are professionals who make 250 grand a year and more. And those people say, hey, should I get my first rental property? It sounds great what you're doing with, with this real estate business. But I'm like, honestly, you go buy two, three rental properties and waste your time trying to renovate them and, and you know get tenants and all that kind of stuff. And then go through that steep learning curve. It'll, you'll actually make less if you just invested that time in your current business, making $200 an hour where you currently with what you currently do. So oftentimes for the person who's in that position, who's got that high value skill and whatever, let's say they're a doctor or a dentist or a consultant and they make $200 an hour, they shouldn't be getting into real estate investing. They should probably be partnering with someone who does that full-time who's an expert or doing private lending or something more passive because the return on time is terrible. Now, if you work $25 an hour as a contractor, get into real estate because you'll make more money per hour. But if you're like, it just depends on what your current system looks like. Real estate isn't for everyone, um, especially actively managing a you know real estate portfolio as a landlord is not for everyone. There are tons of cons to getting into the real estate business. It's a business like any other, and it's a steep learning curve. It takes time to become an expert and become proficient, and the mistakes along the way will cost you out of your return on investment. So something to think about. So hopefully that gave you, Bruno, sort of the two sides, and I'm probably missing a lot of it just because that was off the, you know, whatever I could think of at the time. But there's some you know, positives and negatives. And I think that real estate can be a great business. It's a nice business that has consistent revenues for the most part. Tenants typically have a set amount of rent that they pay. You typically get paid, right, on you know, nine out of 10 times. But, um, and you get appreciation and you can add value to your property. I like how systematic it is to build your business. In another type of business, you know, you're very dependent on if someone's gonna buy your product or not. In real estate, you buy the properties one at a time on a consistent schedule and you put tenants in. And it's easy to sell the product because you put an ad out and someone rents the unit. It's a lot easier to do the sales aspect in real estate than it is in say another business where you're trying to hawk a product. Um, so yeah, that's, there, there are advantages to the real estate business and I love real estate. It is you know, one of the best asset classes to leverage. So that's what makes real estate so attractive. If I had to buy real estate in cash, I wouldn't be in the real estate business. Fact, like if there was no more mortgages, if, you have, if you're like Mike, you can invest in, in any asset you want, but hey, you can't lever up. You can't put a mortgage on the property. I would, I would never touch real estate with a 10 foot pole. So real estate is attractive because of the leverage component, in my opinion. Okay, so next question. That was a good one by the way, Bruno. I'm glad you opened that window up and we got to have a little look inside the negative side of the real estate business. Oak Ridge says, I have a question. I'm able to save around $1,400 to $1,500 a month and I'm trying to buy an investment property. Would you recommend putting that money into stocks or just a high interest savings account? So yeah, that's tough. What do you do with your money when you're just starting to save it up? So initially what I used to do is I would put it right into a, a savings account. Yeah, where I'd get like two, 3%. But when I got up to certain amounts, like say maybe 5,000 or 10,000, I'd move it over into, actually at the time we had a, uh, I had a company pension plan for a little bit. So I was doing that to double up my payments and that was 100% return on my money. So some of my money went into that. But the majority of my savings were going into my stock account. And in my stock account, I was buying, um, most of what I was buying was pretty blue chip, dividend paying type stuff. So I was buying stuff that I thought was undervalued and paid a, like a dividend. So I, I wasn't going for massive appreciation. I was just buying stuff that I thought would pay me like a four or five or 6% dividend. Another thing you could do, pretty smart, would be buying interest bearing type investments. So you could buy something that pays you a fixed return, like bonds. There's some like municipal bonds that pay six, 7%. Um, there are examples of utility companies that you can buy that have like 
and by the way, you don't have to just buy the common stock. You could buy like a preferred share or like usually the preferred B series that doesn't trade with as much volatility, but pays say like an 8% or 9% return. Buy something like that. It doesn't have a lot of price flexibility, but that pays a fixed return. That's something you could do with your money. Just put it in there. And then the, the thing to remember is a year from now or two years from now or whatever your time horizon looks like, whenever you need that money back, what is the market going to be doing? We don't know. That's the truth. We don't know if it's going to be up or down. So if you can buy something that's sort of recession proof, focused on paying up, maybe a bit lower return, but that is consistent and steady and will allow you to pull that money out when you need it, that's important. Um, so there are products you can invest in like that. Um, there are tons of, of lending sites too, where you can do like micro lending. That's a cool thing you can do with shorter time horizons. So Next question. Sorry, a text just came out. I was reading the text. Uh, what are your thoughts on the Sarnia market? Brandon, what are my thoughts on the Sarnia market? So I grew up just outside and, and actually at times in Sarnia, Ontario. So I know Sarnia pretty well from a like geographic perspective. Like I guess I know the streets and I know the areas and stuff like that. I'm not actively invested in Sarnia, so I can't say I've got a cottage on... Uh, or land development on Lakeshore that we're just selling. So outside of Sarnia, more towards Lampton Shores area. But um, I haven't been following Sarnia a whole ton. I know that they did fairly well when Nova planned to add $2 billion into the local economy there. I know that it's a very, um, I guess the Chemical Valley employs a good percentage of you know people there. And then the people who get income from the Chemical Valley, they spend money in Sarnia and create the jobs. So basically it's all tied to the Chemical Valley. And so it's very heavily like oil dependent and, you know, natural resources and stuff like that um, and refinery. So that's the risk, I guess, in Sarnia is it's a small town with a population not growing. It's pretty flat. There's a lot of old seniors in Sarnia. And so that's something that I think plays negatively for Sarnia is that it doesn't have a very diverse economy. It's a, you know, it's got a small college and it's just not a lot of diversity, right? That you see in the Sarnia, Ontario economy. So my opinion on Sarnia, again, I'm not an expert, so I'm deferring to the experts in the market. But what I see when I look at like the open MLS there in Sarnia is a little bit more cash flow than what I'm getting in London. Call it 25% more cash flow. Where I can buy a 1% real property in London, it seems like I could probably find a one and a quarter percent real property in Sarnia. And that to me isn't enough of a difference to, I guess, mitigate the risk of the market sort of declining um, in Sarnia as you know industries could shift right when you have one industry you're very tied you're very undiversified right so there's a, a higher market risk or a beta risk for investing in the real estate market in Sarnia so if you live there I think investing in your local market is one of the smartest things you can do because you're there you can physically touch and you are an, you can become an expert in your own market much easier and it's easier to find people to manage there etc I like investing in my local markets. I always recommend people start with a couple of rental properties in their own market, unless they're in like, you know, Vancouver where it's impossible to buy property or, you know, LA or something. But um, in Sarnia, it's very affordable to buy a house, right? So you could start investing there if you live there. But if you're from like Toronto, don't go down to Sarnia. Like, geez. Um, I mean, maybe go to Sarnia, do your research. But I, I personally wouldn't. I think I would stop in a different city if I wasn't from, if I was say from Toronto, I wouldn't be picking Sarnia. To invest that's just me if i lived in sarnia i'd probably buy some rental properties in sarnia so that's does that make sense i don't love the market enough that without living there i, I would invest 
that said, there's good cash flow there. It's better than London. Appreciation there is okay. Um, the population isn't rising a ton. It's not very diverse. And so long-term, I wouldn't expect it to appreciate faster than say Vancouver, Toronto, London, et cetera. Okay, next question. Hey, Shaylin, how you doing? Hey, Mike, hope you're having a good evening. I was wondering how promotions and salary increases work in unstructured environments in the consulting world. Well, Shaylin, the most important thing you can remember in an unstructured environment is the employer, again, the employer is trying to pay you as little as they can to get the most out of you. But they know that if they pay you too little, they'll get almost nothing out of you. At the same time, your employer has a lot of things going on. So they might not be cognizant of the value you're bringing to the organization or to their clients. Make them aware of the value you're bringing to them. When you help the client save $50,000 and you bring a $20,000 billing to your firm, let everyone know in a non-braggy, you know, sort of humble way, just sort of bring that out. I don't know how you maybe let your immediate boss know and hopefully they'll toot your praises. There maybe at the time of your, your performance appraisal at six months in, you, I used to bring to my performance appraisals a, I do this on my own time at home. I do a list of everything I've done in the last six months and all the major accomplishments I had. I'd bring a package in to my performance appraisal. So if my performance appraisal wasn't good, I'd be like, here's the package of all the things I've been able to accomplish. And I'd usually send it in before my meeting and they'd be like, holy crap, Mike's documented everything he's done for us. And you'd be surprised that like, they can't believe how much you've actually been able to accomplish in six months. They only remember one or two things you did. But if you can remind them of all the great things you've done for the company, it puts you on the fast track. I was promoted um, in my first year, I was promoted again in my second year, promoted finally to manager of a, a small uh, area in my third um, year. Uh, so that, that was something that I did in the corporate world to, to grow and to flourish. Again, like I saw the corporate ladder as a means to an end. Like I didn't want to go all the way to the top of the ladder. I was using the ladder to get on the roof. Once I was on the roof, then I could start jumping and do entrepreneurship, right? So I was looking at it as like, how do I get onto the roof? Um, I'm not trying to get to the top of the building. I'm just trying to get up this ladder a couple of rungs so I can start investing in real estate and in businesses. So for me, it was a means to an end. But I understand there's a lot of lip service and a lot of um, corporate bullshit you have to put up with to climb the ladder. And, and that's important. If you don't lip service and you don't like, there's so many times where I had coworkers that I disagree with what they had to say, or I wanted to say something differently and I held my tongue. I bit my tongue. I had a blog that made me delete my blog on personal finance because it offended people in the office that I was going towards this early retirement goal. There's a lot of things I kept on the down low to grow from a career perspective. And so that's something you have to do to grow in the corporate world. And it sucks, but it's just the nature of it. And I think most of us, you know, who are type A personalities or want to burst out into the, you know, the early retirement space, we want to do our own thing. We want to chase our own businesses, our own passions. And that means not working for someone else. But often that means in the beginning, trading your time for money because you need to get a start. Everyone has to start somewhere. And so that means being a slave for a while and sucking it up in the, the corporate world as a wage slave. So yeah, those are some things I would do is before every performance appraisal, I would do a little report on what you'd be able to accomplish and maybe even embellish a little bit some of the tangible outcomes to the organization. Just show how much value you've provided. Show them, if you're looking for that next promotion, show them the qualities of that position that you currently possess or that you've ideally that you've evolved or grown into over your role and how certain objectives or things you've ach achieved or tackled have got you there. Hey, sweetheart. I will after my show. Okay, sweetheart. I promise. Mom says I have to keep you off camera and not right now, but in a few minutes I will. Okay. Okay. You watch it. I'll be in there in a minute. Okay. This is the one hour once a week where I cannot watch the show with you. Okay, sweetheart.
Okay, love you. Sorry, guys. I promised my wife I would try to keep her off camera. Am I still live? Hello? Oh, I'm still live. Okay, good. I should turn off one of the lights. <laughs> um, I forget where I was now. Jason, I'm, family and I are good. Uh, I, K, M, B, B, and big four, two-year in MBA promotion, two-year to manager. So the big four, two years, and then MBA promotion. Yeah, I mean, that that's pretty much true. I would agree with that for the most part. Um, there are ways, obviously, to grow faster. I know some anomalies who have escalated faster, but you gotta get really lucky or be on the right, I guess the right, with the right manager on the right track with the right project to get promoted faster than that. But again, like there's a world outside of that. Like no one actually cares if you did, you know, five years in consulting and were promoted a little bit faster than someone else, especially in the world, like the real estate world, the entrepreneurship world, it actually doesn't matter. People don't care. Um, so something to think about. Okay. I got a lot of questions here. Jeez. Next question. LeVar, how you doing? Adventures on Vancouver Island. Hey, how you doing? Good to see you on as well. We did that question already. Okay, so now we're on to Joe Normans. What would you say are the subtle signs of a neighborhood becoming gentrified? Um, okay, drive through the neighborhood and take a look and see if properties are being renovated in the neighborhood. That's a big one. Uh, if you see like dump bins outside, people are fixing stuff up. If you're seeing people you know, fixing stuff up in the neighborhood, that's a big one. Oftentimes, you can just drive through the neighborhood and get a feel for the type of people that are living there. If you start seeing a couple of houses with nice cars, you know, well-kept houses that have been renovated, you see, you know, cer certain types of, of people will gentrify a neighborhood, right? And so you're looking for those types of people to be moving in. Another thing is just watch all of the MLS listings in that area. The agents in the area and the people selling their houses, they know whether it's being gentrified or not, you'll start to see agents say, hey, like up and coming area, and, and you'll, you have to see a pattern, like one listing isn't enough to signify, or it's a signal, I guess. You need to see multiple listings where that's starting to happen, where you're seeing, hey, prices are starting to come up in this area in a big way. I'm seeing a lot of people fixing up properties in this area. Oftentimes it takes a catalyst, like a new store has come to the area, like a maybe a new grocery store, or they've shut down a methadone clinic, or they've moved a methadone clinic, or they've shut down a government housing. Basically, wherever the lowest society live, the neighborhood will not be nice. And like, I know that just sounds terrible, but like, if you've got people with mental illness, and mental illness is a really bad one that I don't even want to tackle here, but if you, you put a whole bunch of people with mental illness in the best neighborhood in town, the houses will be destroyed in 10 years. That's just the nature, like they're dealing with some big issues, and so windows will get broken, and things will happen, there'll be fights and drama, and no one wants to live next to that. No one wants to live in a neighborhood like that. Most people don't anyway. And so, Wherever the riffraff who are struggling in the bottom of society are on the drug abuse and all this kind of stuff, wherever they live, that's where you don't want to be and invest for the most part. So you want to look for where they're moving. Here in London, we had them sort of pushed out of EOA, or now it's called Old East Village, but it used to be called uh, East of Adelaide. It was pretty rough. They closed Lorne Ave. I actually went to Lorne Ave in grade six for a little bit when I came to live with my dad and then I moved back to Sarnia. But uh, I can tell you it's a, it's a rough, it was a rough area back then. And uh, houses used to be like a hundred grand for a triplex there because you'd walk down the street and someone would scream at you. Like someone with mental illness would be screaming on their front porch at you in like 
gibberish. You barely understand every third word they said. And you see someone in the alley just like injecting a little needle. You see condoms lying on the ground. You don't see that in a gentrified neighborhood. And now you walk through the neighborhood and you won't see that. People are cleaning up after the neighborhood. They've kind of pushed out the people who are rough to a different area of the city. And so follow the rent trends, follow where people are, like what's the cost of rent? What kind of units are you seeing for rent? All this kind of stuff. Um, that's how you kind of tell if a neighborhood is gentrifying. But oftentimes it takes something happening like a new employer moving into the area or something like that to drive that area up. It isn't usually just some people come in there and start fixing up some houses. Usually it's a whole bunch of things in a medley coming together to gentrify a neighborhood. Next question. We did that question. Okay, so I found out where we are. Okay, so Ad says, hey Mike, what's a good location to buy a first house in London going to Western and I want to house hack? Um, well, affordably speaking, don't buy anything near the Western gates. It's just all overpriced. Price to rents are terrible there. So where do you want to look if you're buying near Western as a Western student to house hack? You want to be within one bus. So anything down Western Road that becomes Warncliffe is fantastic. The bus turns at Riverside, the two bus, the 2A, 2B, 2C, um, the downtown. They all go from downtown to Western. So along that trajectory of like Riverside to Warncliffe, there's some really good affordability in there. I actually have a property as an example that's on MLS right now for like 380. Uh, it's a four bed, two bath detached house with a garage uh, on Warncliffe near Warncliffe and Oxford. That's a one bus route, five minutes to Western campus. That'd be a great property you could live in, have a three roommates to cover your cost. That's an example of like in the 300,000s range, you can still find properties you can house hack. So that's an example. Um, I like the Blackfriars area. I like the Oxford Park area. I like a little bit west of the university towards Sarnia and Oxford. It's a little bit further. The buses aren't as good there, but you can find some stuff there too. Um, there's not much north. There's not much at the gates, like the east side of, of, of Western. Hopefully that helps you. Next question. Scrolling up to find my place. Okay, I found it. Hey, D How To, how you doing? Thanks for jumping on. REITs are down 40% still this year, particularly Rio Can. Any thoughts on Rio Can? And I think you mean REITs, you said refits, but REITs in general, thinking about selling my bonds and buying REITs. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's opportunity. A lot of the REITs were beat up, especially I like, um, I like the some of the commercial REITs that focus on like convention centers, because people are like the certain organizations like the, the NRA, they only rely on people meeting up physically, right? That's one of the main sources of revenue for their business. So that'll continue you know, post COVID, no matter what. So I think those types of businesses will do really well. They're real estate focused. I feel good about that. Um, stay away from anything industrial, like anything um, uh, commercial real estate. I don't like as far as like office space or you know retail. Stay away from those REITs. There's a lot of REITs that, that play in that area, like shopping malls and stuff. I'm not bullish on that at all. I think they've been beat up justifiably so. Um, I think that there's a play for the residential stuff if you're buying the right REITs. There are some REITs here that own properties in London and in Kitchener-Waterloo. Um, I'm trying to think of what they're called. There's a private REIT you could buy too that, that holds a lot of real estate in southwestern Ontario and they primarily focus on like apartment building, furnished suites and stuff like that. That would be a good buy. I think they've been beat up probably quite a bit because of COVID. I don't know how they've, I've been following the stock prices or the, I guess the ticker prices for REITs, but I think there'd be opportunity um, in, in the market for sure. You just gotta look for it. That said, I think a lot of the REITs were previously before COVID trading at, you know, a little high. Um, yeah, I mean, 
there are REITs that pay eight to 10% fixed returns. So if you're gonna hold over a 10 year period and you don't care about the price fluctuations and you're looking for an eight or 10% return on your money secured against you know equity and, and buildings, REITs are fantastic. Big fan of REITs if you buy the right ones that are residential focused. Next question. Okay, Robin did ask a question. I just saw it come up now. Sorry, I missed it, Robin. You did do a super chat earlier, so you should have got priority, but at the time you did the super chat, I didn't see the question, so my apologies. Robin says, where is the best place to keep an emergency fund? That's a tough one, and it depends on your risk profile. It depends on your timeline. So if your emergency fund is, ideally it's there for whenever you need it. So it's ideally pretty liquid. So what that means is, I like a good place I like to park it when people call me is like, if you have a home equity line of credit or you have a line of credit with a balance on it, I'm like, hey, put it down your home equity line of credit, like pay down your mortgage with that emergency fund. If you ever need it, you can drop back out of your home equity line of credit, right? Whenever you want, it's, it's a fluid, flexible product. So I'm like, that's a good place to park your money is against your debt. If you have debt, you can always just pull it back out again. But while it's sitting there, it's saving the interest rate after tax on whatever it's parked against. So first place I like to put emergency funds is parked against existing balances on home equity lines of credits or on uh, lines of credits and stuff like that. So that's, that's a favorite place to park it because of the, the nature of how liquid it is. You can pull it up tomorrow or today if you needed it, right? The next place I guess is in a high interest savings account for emergency fund. Like if you could put it in like a, a uh, most of the banks have these like high interest savings accounts that pay like three percent at the max probably two and a half percent now for promotion that's a good place to put it but then you have to keep moving it every time the promotion ends which is a bit of a pain every six months um eq bank used to have a pretty good three percent every day rate i don't know if they still have that now probably not post covid uh you could put it in an investment account and then lever the investment account up to buy stock with the lever and then keep the cash in the account. So if you ever needed it, you'd have it, but the cash is there as, as leverage. So that's a cool way to do stuff. But um, yeah, I mean, usually the emergency fund is so small, you're not super worried about what you're putting it in. So if you're putting like $10,000 in a 5% or 6% yield versus a 3% yield rate of return, who cares? The difference is a couple hundred dollars a year. We're talking like 20 bucks a month difference. It doesn't really matter. So it's, it's the big money. It's where you're planting your big money not your small money. Your small money, like your emergency fund is typically pretty small, unless you have a large real estate portfolio, in which case it's working capital and it should be counted into your, your business needs and costed for within your business plan. But the idea is that your emergency fund is so small, it doesn't really matter if it's generating 2% or 3% or 5% return. Um, the difference is, is negligible over you know, a one year or two year period. But yeah, those are some options you could look at. If anyone has any better ideas, drop them in the comments than what I just mentioned. I'd be happy to hear them. Again, remembering the focus being liquidity. So I wouldn't buy like equities that you have, would take time to sell or buy you know, things that are fixed and hard to get the money out of. Liqu the liquidity is number one when it comes to your emergency fund. You wanna be able to access it immediately if you need it. That's the whole point of an emergency fund. Watts says thank you. Thank you, Watts. Trevor says, hey Mike, hope you and the family are doing well. Thank you, Trevor, we are. Hey Mike, if you have a salary of over $200,000 a year, where would you start in real estate? Well, Coolio, the thing is, if you have a salary of over $200,000 a year, your time is probably too valuable to be investing in real estate actively yourself. So that means you doing property management yourself, you doing renovations yourself, waste of time. Probably even you doing wholesaling, as in finding private deals, probably below your pay grade. I know that sounds terrible to say, but if you make $250,000, $200,000 a year, your time is worth a couple hundred dollars an hour. 
no property managers make a couple hundred dollars an hour. So yeah, I mean, think about where you're putting your time. It, again, like you're probably, if you're making 200 grand a year, you're in the top 1%, actually slightly probably above the top 1%, depending on what age you are. I don't know what your age is, but um, for the most part, that would mean that you want to take your active income, active income, focus on growing that because you you have a high value skill that's making you 200 grand a year. So you should be focusing on whatever that skill is that makes you 200 grand a year. Do more of that. Like spend your excess time growing that stream of income, then take all that surplus and invest it in passively in real estate. So do mortgages, provide people capital who do flips, provide people capital who do rental properties, lend money to them at 10 or 12%. And at 12%, say, you could save a hundred grand a year of your $200,000 salary, you get an extra, you know, on a hundred grand, that's a thousand dollars a month in passive income, right? So that requires none of your time. That's the most important thing for you. If you're a high income earner, you need to be focused on return on time and return on investment. And if you might get 12% lending and 20% doing, you know, buying rental properties or 25% return buying rental properties, the difference is your time. Like the, it's going to cost you a lot more time to get a 25% return on investment. It's a lot of time to buy a property. Just go through the financing, you know, rigmarole and go through all the, you know, stabilization process to get a property to, to proper cash flow. And that time, if you, if your time is 250 bucks an hour, you might discount your time off that 25% return and finance the same as the 12% return. So that's something I think that a lot of people don't, um, almost none of the gurus are talking about that return on time. And if you're a high skill, high value person, you shouldn't be focused on the low value stuff in real estate. It's just, it's not low hanging fruit for you. Why would you reach for the top, the hard fruit when you can reach for the low hanging fruit? And that might've been hard to, to hear, but um, hopefully that provides some value. Next question. Hey William, good to see you on, appreciate it. Jacob says, hello Mike, hope you're doing well. Thanks Jacob, I am doing well. Hope you're doing well as well. Harriet says, have you ever used an N13 form? What's your experience with that? Harriet, no, I almost did. I served it and the tenants left on their own. So I've never actually been through the process of an N13. Um, I've coached two people through the process of an N13, one who bought a property, one who bought a rental property, and then ended up moving into it um, for a year. So I've helped them go through the landlord tenant board and I, through them, learned how the process works. But effectively, you gotta pay like one month's rent to get the tenant out. In almost all cases, using an N13, you can, you can get them out just by paying them without going to the lender tenant board. But yeah, you sometimes have, like the tenant just refuses to negotiate, they refuse to leave willingly, and you have to go through the motions, serve the N13 and, and get them out. Um, yeah, so yeah, it's tough, but it is a, something in the landlord's you know repertoire of, they should be familiar with the N13 form. You can only use it like once though, and you have to keep the unit vacant for a year. You have to have lived in it for a year with your family or your friends, or, or not, for, not friends your family or yourself living in the property. So if you go and turn around and rent the property out after, you can be fined $25,000 or $50,000. So don't use the N13 form wrong. Too many landlords are using that N13 form and the N13 is you evicting them for you or your family to move into the unit. A lot of landlords abuse that and they're sending out huge fines for people who use that and then don't move into it and rent it out. That's a no-no. That isn't a way to get rid of a tenant. Get them to leave willingly. Get them to sign an N11 and have them leave willingly. Agree to a price and have them leave. That's completely legal. That's the way to do it. How do you price out a new project? How detailed are you in with a new contractor? William, it depends on the project, but for the most part, I do a rough estimate per like, you know, plumbing rough in, plumbing final, electrical rough in, final framing rough in, final boarding, taping, flooring, HVAC, whatever, windows, exterior, you know, miscellaneous interior finishing, doors and trim, 
kitchen cabinet install and et cetera, so forth. So I go rough, rough tasks of what has to be done and I cost each one out. Um, ideally with a contractor, you do a set price and a draw system. So when they hit certain, you know, when the plumbing's done, they get it paid. When this is done, they get paid. And they don't get paid unless they complete a metric. That's the only fair way to do it. I don't know of any other way to, to do it fairly. The, the time thing where you pay contractors per hour, it sometimes works in your benefit, but often what I find is that you get taken for a ride. They don't get enough done, they're not incentivized to complete tasks, they're just incentivized to put time in on the site. So they're talking and taking their time. It's not a great way to get work done on a project quickly. So sometimes it makes sense to pay guys hourly or you know, per job is the best way in my opinion. Per job attached to specific completion targets. Thanks, William. Next question. Scrolling back up to find my spot. We take great care of our clients' properties. Good to hear, Doug. And that's what you want, Doug. Like Douglas, uh, Douglas Dix. If you honestly, if anyone, this is a shout out to everyone who's watching right now. If anyone knows any really good property managers in London who have a small portfolio of properties who care deeply for the properties. Honestly, even if I could find a realtor out there who was hungry enough to manage a few of my properties, I would give them the right to sell those properties. I'd pay them commission to sell the property for it's their property. But if I could find someone to take care of the property who actually cared about the property the way an owner does, that's solid gold. There's, they're hard to find. If you know of someone in London, Ontario, please email me or Instagram me. Um, I've spoken to several and not found any that seemed to care to the same degree or that were experienced enough and really understood how rental licenses work in this in this uh, city or again you want someone who's on seven days a week too right you want a manager who's who's gonna care about the property the way you do not someone who's like hey on monday to friday my staff is taking care of it you don't want that because there's so many layers of telephone tag it never goes well um, so if someone knows about someone like that in london please message me on instagram at mike rosehart or you know reach out to me and, and let me know because i would love to find a really good property manager even for a couple of my properties i'd like to have you know, a few of my properties with a different, couple of different managers and see how they perform and, and do sort of like a little beta test. Um, Cause I've had really bad results with, you know, a lot of different managers. And that's just because some of the properties that I buy are tough properties. They've had tough tenants in them and I get that. Um, but finding a good manager, that's, that's tough. That's tough. So if you guys have good managers, let me know. I like to put them to the test. Lost my spot now. Okay, I'm trying to find it again. Scrolling, scrolling, found it. Okay. Harriet says, you use personal lines of credit for emergency fund? Isn't that ill-advised? No. Um, I have no other use for the personal unsecured lines of credits than an emergency fund. Like, I, I'll i leave them drawn at zero forever unless I need them. And I, in the last, like, year, I haven't, I don't think I've even tapped any of them. And I've got six figures in unsecured uh, lines of credit. They're just there for an emergency. Um, Mike, are you in London? I'm in London, Ontario. I've been all over Canada, but I live in London, Ontario, Canada. London is in Canada. <laughs> Not London, England. London, Canada. We have half a million people. A little bit, a little bit smaller. Um, How is the current market for renting? It's pretty bad, actually. Um, applications are at an all-time low. Rents are falling. Vacancy rates are higher. The reason for that is I was doing a little bit of math um, in an, actually a Facebook discussion with someone a couple of days ago. And basically, if you look at London, Ontario, we're, we're just under 500,000, you know, in the greater area. And there's about 100,000 students between 
the major university, the largest college in Canada, Fanshawe College, Western University, and the part-time colleges in the area and the part-time students. So we have 100,000 students. And it's, uh, in September, I guess we heard a stat that all the internationals weren't coming back and that something like 30% of students were coming back. The other 70% were either international and going online or some, some form of distance, right? So if we actually, if this, if this actually continued on and online learning became a thing of the future, and let's say we lost half of, or half of the students, let's say, 50,000 of them came, 50,000 of them didn't. They did it online, they commuted from Toronto for the one day a week or whatever, right? And so we had half. We used to have, you know, full. In London, Ontario, something like 50% of families, or sorry, 50% of um, the population is homeowners or live in a home with like, you know, the wife's, you know, brother owns the house or whatever, like they're, they're not tenants, they're, they're family, they live together and they're not a tenant. So what I'm saying is half the, of the tenants are tenants. Or sorry, half the population are tenants. So in London, there are 250,000 tenants. Majority, like 98% of students are tenants. Almost none of them own houses. So what you're finding is that all the homeowners are like half of London. The other half of London are tenants. And of that you know, 200, 250,000 tenants, about one in five or like one in four are, of the tenants are students. So if a quarter of the entire tenant population disappears from London, right? We do the math on that. If all the students disappear to be about half the tenant population. Think of how that's gonna affect the rent prices of one bedroom units, two bedroom units, three bedroom units, four bedroom units, and full houses. It's gonna affect it negatively. So rent prices should be falling in London, Ontario. We should see vacancy rates higher. We are seeing that. That is the case. The guys who I'm talking to on the ground are having harder times renting units out for prices that they used to be able to get four months ago. They can't get those prices. They're dropping the rent 50 bucks, 100 bucks on one bedroom, two bedroom, three bedroom units. Now on average, we're seeing rents are still going up because the average rent price in London is tied to units that are five years old, 10 years old. It factors in all the data. I'm talking about just new listings, just freshly new renovated units. If you compare to six months ago, the average price you're getting for a unit you're posting today is less than what you were pre-COVID. So we are affected negatively in London, Ontario, and it will eventually translate into lower house prices. It should, but we have the Fed keeping interest rates at all-time lows. So what that means is, if interest rates at all-time lows, prices go up. So the downward pressure, the fact that there aren't tenants to fill the units and that rents will have to fall until a tenant can afford a unit and then we reach equilibrium, that is downward pressure on the prices of real estate. Same time, we have upper pressure from the interest rates and the federal stimulus money that they're dumping into businesses right now. And they're dumping, dumping in the form of CERB to individuals too. So it's just like a, a you know stimulus package of interest rates and free money that's keeping the economy propped up. It should be a lot worse than it is. Um, yeah, so that's my opinion on that. Next question. I need to go rapid fire because I'm not gonna catch all this up in time to watch a show with my daughter. Okay. Hey, wanna make more money? Write a book, man. Your info is golden. Thanks, dude. Um, dude, Jay, appreciate that comment. I, I do want to do that. I just haven't got around to it. Laziness, procrastination. I don't know. I need to find a ghostwriter to work with to help me get my thoughts um, sort of organized. And it's not that I can't write it myself. It's just that when I have screaming kids and phone calls and stuff, I just can't get the time to get it done. Brock says, hey, Mike, if you lost the majority of your money right now, what would you do to get back to where you're financially? So where I'm at now, I guess. Would you consider starting real estate wholesaling company? Thank you. Brock, I wouldn't. Um, only because, well, maybe, I don't know. I think I've done this doomsday scenario like four times now for viewers on the show. So if you go back like 10 episodes ago, I did a really good one that was like 20 minutes long. I'm not gonna do that now for the sake of like 
repeating myself a fourth time, go check those episodes out, Brock, and you'll see how I uh, sort of handled that situation. Each time I approach it, it's a little different. But would I use real estate? Yes, I most certainly would. I would use leverage in real estate. That's the most important thing that I would do. Sorry, I gotta keep her off camera. Um, I'm hurrying, sweetheart, I promise. Um, wholesaling's great if you, you know, it's like a 60 or $80,000 a year job on, for the most part. If you build a really good wholesaling business with employees under you, you can make two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars $300,000 a year, high, best case scenario. To get to there though, is a year of working where you're building a brand and get, putting flyers out and you're earning nothing. So your return on time isn't that great, just wholesaling. Most wholesalers earn like less than the average, than the, I guess, top half of realtors. So I would say I'd probably go for realtor as opposed to wholesaler. Um, it's just more legitimate, more credible, and it's easier to get. It's, it's the same way. Like I would still take leads and list them and make a commission. Um, wholesalers are greedier in their commission structure. So they're just like realtors, but they get a better commission. Uh, they also are not bound by any rules. So a realtor can't go scam someone out of a house. A wholesaler can. Um, a realtor can't scam a buyer or a seller, whereas a wholesaler can scam both sides of the transaction. So ethically speaking, it's a bit gray, a bit dubious to be a wholesaler. Um, but yeah, I make $100,000 a year as a realtor. If I were to just, like I already am a realtor, but if I just became, that was my business, the amount of people that want me to go help them find rental properties and help them, you know, with that whole piece, if I had no money tomorrow, that's what I would tap into. Um, is I would focus on that key value play and probably make 200 grand a year just as a realtor and I'd just do that. Um, I would probably start locking stuff up under contract, right? And I know enough, like I have good connections, right? So I could call someone, hey, I just locked something up on MLS or just a pocket listing for 200 grand, it's worth 250. I could assign it as a realtor, right? And, and make a fee. So I would just do that as a realtor probably, or I would say, say to a client, here, you close this and I'll sell it for you. Then 30 days of us closing it, I'll wholetail it and we'll, we'll make a, you know, split the profit 50-50. I would come up with structures like that to build wealth quickly um, if I had to start again, probably. But I would do a lot of what I did the first time, again, just faster, if that makes sense. You guys all know my story. You can watch my, what, 100 live streams, hundreds of hours of content out there you guys can watch on that, so. Trevor says, D-U-K, 4.6% utility company. There you go, take a look at that. I, I have no idea, I haven't followed that one, but take a look. Um, Harriet Tubman, every MLS that looks good, I evaluate as like a 20% ROI with principal pay down. Does that sound like I'm doing something wrong? I see a no-brainer deal on the MLS every month. Yeah, I mean, that sounds like a, a pretty fair real estate investment. It depends on the level of time you have to put in to get that ROI, right? Like a 20% return and no time single family house is a great opportunity. But a 30% return on investment fourplex that's like a rooming house you gotta grind every day and your property manager's gonna hate you, that's not, they're not the same. They're not apples, they're apples and oranges. So two real estate deals could be completely different from a return on time perspective. And that's something I think that we should look at when we're evaluating real estate is how much work is involved and what's it like to manage this property versus you know another property. Hey Mike, good to see you on. Thanks for joining the stream. Future says, uh, hey Mike, do you think a delayed is acceptable. I mean, buy a property, put a tenant in. Uh, is there a rehab in later in the future or is that just stupid? So yeah, I mean, you could, a lot of people take their time to do a burr. You could, there could be months or a year between certain letters of the burr, right? You could refinance it two years from now and you could, yeah. So people do delayed burrs. I would say after, if you're just doing appreciation and refinancing after like five years, that's not a burr. That's like appreciation investing. You're capitalizing on that appreciation. A lot of people in the community on Instagram are like, just bird my property. And it's like, they owned it for five years. And it's like, that's not a bird. You bought a property, it appreciated, and you pulled the appreciation out. You didn't 
do a huge renovation, you didn't go through the struggles to get the rents up, et cetera, so forth. You didn't unlock the value, you just invested at the right time. And there's a distinction. But I guess technically, both could follow the, if you did a small renovation over five years, technically it could be a burr, um, it would just be a super delayed one. Is it possible to manage a property remotely? Yes, for sure it is. Um, I almost never, I try to almost never go to my properties. I would like to have someone that I that I manage. I have a spreadsheet we keep for expenses and, and revenue for, for rents coming in and someone else is sort of focused on going to the site when necessary. But in an ideal world, you run your business from your phone, from a beach, you can manage your properties if you had the right team in place on the ground. Now it's hard to grow a business that way. It's hard to buy properties that are extremely distressed and renovate them from a distance. But once the properties are stabilized, yeah, I see no reason you couldn't be on a beach in Costa Rica running a real estate portfolio. But your phone will still go off. You will have to do work. It's just laptop life. Do you believe that properties in Vancouver and Toronto are always likely to appreciate? Or do you believe they have a ceiling? You know, I think that from a market fundamentals perspective, Michael, Toronto and Vancouver will continue to grow so long as people will continue to move there and invest capital there. And I think people will continue to invest capital there because of immigration. People want to keep, like, look at Toronto's population, look at Vancouver's population. It's growing. And so as long as it's growing faster than there's available housing, the housing will increase in value. Um, so there is no ceiling so far as there are people that come in and buy the property for more. And I, there's a lot of rich people out there. The divide between the rich and poor right now is bigger than it's ever been. The rich have a lot of money. And so I think that that keeps Toronto and Vancouver growing. I think there is no, like there's no ceiling technically. Like inflation ensures that things continue to grow forever. There'll be, it's like saying, is there a cap on how much Subway could charge for a sub? No, someday a Subway sub, if inflation continues as it is, in 50 years, a Subway sub will be 20 bucks. It's just, it's the way it'll be. Um, and minimum wage will probably be like 30 bucks or something, I don't know. But uh, yeah, I mean, that's just the way it works with inflation. Next question. I've been told by people I have hateful extremist views. I'm definitely not going to talk about politics at the office. Smart, definitely don't do that. Um, keep politics, religion, money, and philosophy out of the office environment. It's unfortunate because those are the four things I like to talk about the most. I guess I'm just, at the office I'd be a boring person because I don't want to talk about you know chit chat. I don't want to talk about deep core philosophical things that no one wants to talk about that bring up deep seated emotions for most people. Those are the best conversations to have. Harriet says, if you only had 300K right now, how much do you think you could make in five years conservatively? Um, depends. Like if you were to invest that and lever that in real estate, 300,000 buys you $1.5 million in property. If you take 300K, you put 20% down, that's 1.2 million in mortgages, gets you 1.5 million in real estate. And if you could burr that real estate, you could turn 1.5 million in real estate over five years into $3 million in real estate. So your 300 grand would be worth, if you sold all the properties and have closing costs, if you did, these are these would be really good burrs, like some of my best burrs um, would be worth probably like, you'd have like 1.5 million bucks. Your 300 million would be about 1.5, after tax, probably 1.2 million bucks. So you could quadruple it in five years doing what I did. Uh, you can buy a million dollars of real estate with 300K. Yeah, you could buy more than that. You could probably buy like, I think if you levered properly, your first one would be 5% down and the other ones would be 20% down or you could JV with someone as well. You could probably buy about a billion and a half in real estate, I think. University moves to online course. Will this impact student rental properties? Yes, I just talked about that, definitely. Hi Mike, how do you buy from a wholesaler? Does your mortgage approval pay the wholesaler? 
no, you pay the wholesaler. So you buy a property for 160,000, your mortgage company will only go up to 160. Then you pay the wholesaler a 10 or $20,000 fee in cash or in e-transfer after, and you get no mortgage on it. So it sucks because wholesale deals actually are very bad from a leverage perspective. If you buy a $100,000 property with a $50,000 wholesale fee, you've got to put 20% down on the 100,000, so 20,000, plus 50,000 for the wholesaler. So $70,000 in most cases. Unless you can get an appraiser to give you a really high value and then the bank will base it on appraisal. Most cases, they'll take it just the purchase uh, price. They won't take the appraisal. Most of the times they won't take the wholesale fee unless the appraisal comes in really high. Uh, it has happened, but a lot of times buying from a wholesaler, it's weird because the realtor bakes in their commission on a regular deal and the bank's basically financing that commission, but they won't finance a wholesaler's fee. It, it's stupid, but it just is the way it is. Um, most of the banks don't even understand what wholesaling is. Like I tried to explain that I bought a property for 150 and six months later I was going back to the bank to refinance it for 300 and they couldn't understand. Like why would anyone sell you a property for 150? This is a scam. And I'm like, no, like go bring an appraiser and look at it. Like, no, we just won't even, won't even look at this deal. That sounds fishy. Something's wrong here. It's like, you won't even send an appraiser out. Like some, some underwriters just don't understand. They, they believe that everything trades on the market and that no one would sell a property for a discount. That's not the case. We know that. But next one, any thoughts living in Gatineau, Ottawa area, planning to buy a condo next year and use it as a rental property in the next about five years? Go for it. If you're in a house hack and, and find a way to build some equity, cool. Um, I don't like condos as much because they tend not to cash flow as well, but if you're afraid to buy into something that's like a semi-house or a you know, detached house, then okay, at least you're getting into real estate and hopefully you're buying something a little bit smart and if you can house hack it with roommates in some way or you can find a way to, to build equity in it, at least you're getting into, a, into an investment. And at the end of the day, there might be some emotional appeal behind that too compared to renting and there's something to be said about that too. Uh, any advice for using a HELOC to buy a rental? Good idea, bad idea, good idea. Use up all the leverage you can in your existing equity in your properties. Lever them up. Thank you, thank you. Thoughts on Rio Can, it's quite low. I don't follow, haven't been following. I'm probably, if it's low, there might be some value there. I don't know if they hold, they own a lot of commercial stuff though, so just be careful if they own a lot of malls and you know retail space, just be careful of that. I don't think that's gonna do well in the next year from a cash flow perspective. Do you have a recommendation on how to lend privately to get eight to 12%? Yes, go check out my other videos I've done on that, specifically on private lending. Mike, have you signed a prenup agreement with your wife before marriage? No, Raz, I didn't. We built the wealth together, so it wouldn't have really mattered. Mike, have you looked at any real estate in Sarnia? Um, we talked about that earlier in the stream, so we'll go back to that. Do you just use the same purchase agreement template written by your lawyer for all the offers you make and just swap out the address, et cetera? Um, well, there's a, a form 100 that you use as a realtor, as a wholesaler too, and so it's the same form pretty much every time. Yeah, there's some slight tweaks to the conditions in the offer, uh, but yeah, uh, effectively, that's true, Harriet, you do mostly just make tweaks between offers, unless it's a commercial property, in which case you use a form 500 instead of a form 100. Uh, Ella says, thanks, no problem, happy to help. Hey Mike, I make 50 a year, no mortgage, but can qualify for a 200K mortgage. What would you do? Ryan, it might be opportunity, your time doesn't sound like it's worth that much, you make a 50 grand a year, probably worth it to go invest in real estate, buy a rental property, get $200,000 mortgage, go buy something. Build some equity. Hey Mike, are you in London? Yes. What is the interest rate on the unsecured line of credit? It depends, between four and 9%, depending on several factors. They often send out promotions though, which is kind of cool at 1.99% for six months. I take advantage of those. I borrowed it like, and I literally will take the money out at 1.99. One time it was 0.99 on my unsecured line of credit, 0.99% for six months. And I put it on my, my other mortgage. Just like 
with that same bag and just, you know, <laughs> took advantage of the, the difference. But yeah. Braden says, hey, Mike, what would you say are the best terms and types of mortgages for birth strategy Ontario for avoiding fees? Um, oh, that's complex conversation. I guess open, flexible products are the ideal ones. So if you get into a five-year fixed or a two-year fixed, that's going to mean that if you break out, it's going to cost you a lot of money when you go to Burrit. So you want to find an open, flexible product. So a six-month open or you know private mortgage or something like that is the better situation in most cases, unless you can get a mortgage, like I used to get a Scotia, that is one you can refinance. If it's more than $50,000, they'll let you refinance with no breakout fees. Some banks will let you do that. So look into that. Also check out Purchase Plus Improvements type mortgages. Douglas says, Mike, my company has been managing properties like we own them. We've been owning properties for over 43 years. Long. That's awesome. Douglas, send me your, your information. I'll have to reach out and, and hear about that because that would be amazing to find someone who actually cares about the properties and there's a level of, like even just like a move out inspection when a tenant leaves. There's just so many things I'd like to see done better um, by a few of the management companies that I've used. Patricia says, hey, Mike, if I buy one rental property, how likely is it that the bank will approve for a second one for another property? Depends on so many factors like your debt service ratios, et cetera. So I can't tell you, you have to talk to a mortgage broker, but it's very possible. A lot of people do buy multiple properties in a row. Hey Mike, can you turn a commercial unit into a residential unit? Uh, it depends on the area, but yes, potentially. Unit is currently a storefront with a three bedroom upstairs. So yes, in like places like St. Thomas, the city is starving for housing and affordable housing. So they are pro you turning properties into commercial or commercial into residential. So it just depends on the area. London's less so. There are certain zoning restrictions that say like main floor commercial only, and it's a battle just to get it back to residential. It shouldn't be because there's such a need for housing, but you know how the city is sometimes. Seems like a good buy. They invest in both residential and commercial, 75%. Uh, okay, so I, I don't know, but 9.6% dividend sounds good. Um, grocery stores sound fantastic. That's like a smart investment. So that's a good one. Someone send me an Instagram message on that and I'll do a post. Can a person get financing for real estate if they only make thirty or $40,000 a year? Yes, but it will be difficult to buy something expensive. Your affordability will be very low, probably. If you bought a duplex that had, say, a unit that was already rented out, that would help you qualify for a bigger mortgage. That would probably help you qualify for like a $200,000 mortgage where you may only qualify for $120,000 mortgage before. So look for rental properties with existing rental income. That'll help you. If it's even fully rented, you can get one of the units vacant for yourself using the N13 or some form like that. That'd be a great way to get into a property with a lower income. So yes, it's totally possible if you have lower income. And worst case scenario, go to a B lender and they'll, they'll give you a mortgage at 6%. You refinance it later with an A lender. Dylan, hey Mike, really appreciate your input. Thanks. What do you think about the auto market? Having 300,000 cash sitting, should I buy a $300,000 house outright or buy more rental houses? Never buy anything outright in cash. From a real estate perspective, it is a terrible return. I think it's a terrible idea to buy real estate that generates an 8% return or less. In Ottawa, it's like a 6% return. So you could get way better return on your money by not just buying real estate. You could lend it out at 10, 12% and $300,000 would get you $3,000 a month in passive income lent out in private mortgages. And it's safer than putting your money into a down payment on a property. Because you, <laughs> the when you're doing private mortgage lending, you're the 80%, right? The, the first 80% loan to value secured. The investor who you're lending the money to, they're putting up the 20% down payment. So if there's a 20% loss in the market, you're 80% still protected. If you instead bought a property, the bank's money would be protected and your money would be, you'd lose that 20%. So it's actually safer to put your money into a mortgage than it, and security against a property than it is to put it up as a down payment. Because it's the, the down payment's the first thing lost in when things go south. So from a risk perspective, better return and lower risk, like that's a no brainer. 
So don't buy it in cash. But you could buy rental properties and make a better return than private lending. Again, it requires the time commitment. So do you want to put the time in to get the higher return? VC says, Mike, what is your contact information? I have some market research I'd like to run by you. VC, run out to me on, uh, send it to roseheartcoaching at gmail.com or uh, just reach out to me on Instagram. I'll send you my, my private information there as well. So at Mike Roseheart, that's my Instagram. Go on there and find me. Send me a message. Thanks, Braden. Thanks, Brandon. Leventhal, hey, Mike. You asked the same question. Um, yeah, so I, like I was saying, $10,000, the difference is only a couple of hundred bucks, but a lot of what's been suggested here, what I already talked about, would be great suggestions for you with the money. Check that out, Leventhal, and I appreciate you jumping in. I always see you on here, so it's, it's much appreciated that you give me the support every day, or every week on the Wednesday. Uh, but yeah, I, I guess just take a look at, it. probably $10,000 is enough to really get investing in equities, but you could. You could buy some you know, REITs, or you could buy some you know, dividend-type plays or utility companies that pay you a, a small return to be It'd be great. You'd probably be really happy making even a couple of hundred bucks here and there in passive income. Dylan says, thanks, Mike. No problem. And Tom says, great video. Thank you. Thanks everyone so much. 77 minutes. I gotta go. I promised my daughter I'd watch a show with her. I'm introducing her to, I guess, Captain Marvel in this case. Um, so I will watch that now or have a little movie night. I'm late for it. But as always, I try to commit every Wednesday as much as I can to answer every single question. And eventually that's gonna become impossible. But for now, I've been managing to do it in just under an hour and 15 to an hour and a half. So I'm gonna do that now. Um, thank you all so much for watching. I'll see you on Instagram. I'm Mike Rosart. I do live stories six times a day. You can follow along with my life. I share a ton. You can interact with me there. So anyway, the secret to unlocking a wealthier you is three levers in your complete and total control. What you spend, so spend less. What you earn, so find ways to earn more. And the re basically, you want to maximize the returns on the difference, right? So spend less, earn more, and maximize returns on the difference. Bye, guys.